0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of *Canned: The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry* by Anna Zeta. Food and travel. They go hand-in-hand, and chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at charitybuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to feast Portland, or enjoy a ranch-to-table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate Bourbon & Beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot, Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash auction and bid now.
2: and welcome to a taste of the past. I'm your host Linda Palaccio on this journey through culinary history. And I have a question for those listeners out there who are women. Have you been out for dinner lately with a group of your female friends? Well, consider it a privilege, and a privilege that was hard-fought. In fact, it wasn't until 150 years ago that women were actually allowed to be served in a restaurant without an accompaniment of a male. And we owe it all to a particular woman named Jane Cunningham Crowley. In 1868, she was a reporter, actually quite a, a well-known reporter, a good reporter. Um, and she had been, she had heard about a dinner that was being given for Charles Dickens, who was touring the United States. And the New York Press Club threw a dinner in his honor at Delmonico's restaurant. And she really wanted to be at that dinner, and why not? She was a reporter covering a lot of those uh, articles about writers. But the Press Club refused, even though she was a member of the Press Club. They did, after she protested, they did concede to have other her and other female members attend, but they had to stay behind a curtain where they could not be seen or heard. Well, that didn't fly too well with Ms. Crowley. She was a, a writer, and she wrote under the pen name Jenny June. She was so infuriated that she decided to form an organization, an organization primarily of professional women, and it was called Sorosis. Think of like sorority, not, and not psoriasis, but psorosis. Um, it's a scientific term for the group of budding flowers that form a fruit. She got together a bunch of her friends who were writers, um, physicians, a minister. There were about 12 of them. And she decided that they needed to change things around town. So for the first meeting... She approached the owner of Delmonico's, and this was just she did this just a couple of days after the Charles Dickens dinner, and she asked uh, the owner Lorenzo Delmonico if he would host it, and he agreed, uh, not knowing how risky that might be, <laughs> but so he provided a dining room for the first meeting, and the the women continued to meet regularly. And now remember, this was 1868. It was only a few years prior to that that um, slavery had been abolished. And it wasn't even until 1920 that women gained the right to vote. So at times, they were a-changing, for sure. Her choice of Delmonico's was really important, not only because it was um, where Dickens' dinner had been held, but... Delmonico's, as you've probably heard on this show times before, was the first restaurant, well, actually, first establishment of fine dining called a restaurant in America, and that was in 1837, and has continued to operate since that time. So this is 1868. And it, this club met regularly there, as the, and it was the first club run entirely and administered entirely by women. There were no organizations for professional women. Now, this was something that we don't really think about often, and fortunately, there has been some investigation into the past and into this meeting, and I am um, happy to say that Today, as we record, it is April 20th, and it is the 150th anniversary of this first dinner and first meeting of this group of women. And I uh, am honored to have been invited to that luncheon. And I am going to be interviewing some of the people who are integral in putting this together. The luncheon is being, as I said, hosted by Delmonico's, and a guest chef is preparing the food, and rightfully so, it's a woman, Gabrielle Hamilton. And she has, in her own right, it was an early uh, female chef and restaurateur. So, as we progress through the day today, talking about the history of women being able to dine alone, we will hear from Gabrielle as well. Now, women were able. To dine, not dine, but they had special establishments where they could go out and eat. They were ice cream parlors <laughs> where they could have dainty tea sandwiches because the women didn't want to eat a big steak. Right, <laughs> right, wrong. They were ice cream parlors where they would be, um, you know, offered um, dainty dainty eats. And there were some some establishments where women of the elite class could go and dine, but they, again, just like the meeting that they were going to have with Charles Dickens, they would be able to dine in a special room behind a curtain where no one could see them. Because heaven forbid in that day and age, a woman dining alone would have been considered a woman of ill repute. And that was not acceptable. Well, it, as I say, times, they were a change in then, and fortunately for us, they are still changing. So while it might seem like ancient history that women couldn't dine alone in restaurants, think of what women haven't really been able to do since that time. In fact, coinciding nicely with the Me Too movement, this lunch fits in quite well with the awareness of women being able to pursue careers without harassment and go about their business as anyone else would. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from some of the women who have been integral in putting this luncheon together.
1: A century and a half ago, when the American food industry was first taking root, few consumers trusted packaged foods. But with the advent of canning, consumers were introduced to foods made by unknown hands and packed in corrodible metal that seemed to defy the laws of nature by resisting decay. Since that unpromising beginning, the American food supply has undergone a revolution, moving away from a system based on fresh, locally grown goods to one dominated by packaged foods. How did this come to be? New from the University of California Press, Can delves into the story of the canning industry, taking us on a journey to understand how food industry leaders leverage the powers of science, marketing, and politics to win over a reluctant public, even as consumers resisted at every turn. Pick up Canned by Anna Zadie, available now wherever books are sold.
2: Hi, and we are back, and it is a wonderful dinner, 150 women all together, luncheon, excuse me, not dinner, it was a luncheon, 150 women all together in one room. The only men in the room were the ones serving. I thought that was kind of nice. And sitting with me is a a very special person who has a, a very special job, That I never knew about, and I'm sure a lot of other people have not known about. She is Jackie Ebanks, and she is the executive director of the New York City Commission on Gender Equity. Jackie, you gave some very inspirational words um, before the luncheon got going, and I thought if you could share with us a a commission on gender equity.
3: Who knew? uh, When did this start? Uh, Well, thank you for your kind remarks about my work, my words, but um, the commission started in 2015 uh, by Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, He created this commission to ensure that city agencies work together to remove institutional barriers to equity and to establish inclusive policies and practices. And the commission's work is to support the city agencies in delivering on this commitment uh, so that New York City becomes indeed the fairest big city in this country. Oh, and we hope that all the other cities then follow we'll suit, follow right? Yeah. Trying to lead by example. Um, what we hope is, and we know that when we create inclusive policies and practices, all people, regardless of gender identity gender ex- or gender expression, will create many opportunities uh, to be economically secure that these individuals will live safely in their homes and in their communities, they'll have access to quality and affordable health care, and will have full autonomy over their reproductive lives. And that, in essence, gives us the ability to thrive as individuals, and our city is richer and more productive for that.
2: Right. And you... Kind of gave us all—all these women, 150 women sitting there, celebrating the right to be able to dine alone. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's rather a luxury. But um, but you you did sort of throw
3: a a mission out to us. Yes. You know the beauty of events like this, this, like this luncheon, is the opportunity to reflect on the past and to reflect on the benefits that we have gained because of the labors of our foremothers, if you will. And when we do so, we also need to recognize that we are foremothers to a next generation. And therefore, our question ought to be, while celebrating the legacy and the gifts of the women who came before us, what is it that we will pass on to the women who follow us? What is it that we pass on and create for ourselves today? And so I really wanted us to think, as we celebrate, that we are women in places of incredible power and incredible opportunity. How do we leverage our privilege to serve others? How do we leverage our privilege to ensure that we build a more inclusive society? How do we leverage our privilege so that we promote equity and we dismantle marginalization and that we dismantle inequality? Excellent, yeah. And the whole thing just kind of coming, uh, you know, on the
2: heels of the Me Too movement or in Absolutely. the same time as the
3: Me Too movement? Coming in on the heels of the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, and I really do want to give a shout out to the young people who have led in the Black Lives Matters movement, in the Dreamers movement, in uh, the Parkland, uh, uh, the, gun, the young kids, yeah, f- young children from Parkland High School. And... Um, I also want to, you know, today is National Student Walkout Day. Mm -hmm. And so our young people, again, are demonstrating their force as they enter into adulthood with the right to vote. Um, They're recognizing their power and they're speaking truth to power and they're determining their path. And I think as older folks, some of us, we have this opportunity to support them, to engage with them and to be their partners to create this better world that they seek. No,
2: excellent. And uh, thank you so much, and good luck in, in all that you do for the city. And I do hope that all my listeners out there, I, uh, my listeners are all over the, the country and Great. all over the world, Great. too. Um, I find, so, so I hope that they will follow your lead. Yeah, and,
3: and, and, and Sure, and we <laughs> appreciate that. I'm hoping they could visit our website www.nyc.gov slash gender equity and get a sense of the work we do. And we Many opportunities for partnership. This work doesn't happen without full public engagement. And Absolutely. we want to Absolutely. build partnership with the public. Right. And finding out about it through food,
2: I mean, who knew? <laughs> 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 food, food is that common language. It is right? that common language. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining for joining me, and I and I hope you've enjoyed the lunch.
3: Did thank okay. you so much, Linda.
2: As I had mentioned at the top of the show, 150 women dining, getting the privilege to dine after you know, 150 years. 150 years ago we couldn't have done this, had this big luncheon. And there are many different facets that go into and play into organizing an event and of, of this of this magnitude. Um, and I have with me the sales and marketing director and creator of special events for Delmonico's restaurant, Karen Serafian and Karen welcome.
4: Thank you so much. You so did. Be here.
2: You did such a marvelous job. Oh, the you. luncheon came off without a hitch, at least to those of us sitting at the tables, and to me too. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. Thank you. But tell me, how did you conceive of this idea? Was there anything in the records? Did you come? Did you know that that? This special luncheon of these women existed 150 years ago. Did you, were, those, were those records kept somewhere?
4: Um, we did know there was um, a luncheon that was held on April 20th, 1868, and we the two years ago we we celebrated sort of quietly and internally. We um, did something within the restaurant, and last year I said, you know what? Let's make it a little bit more out there and a little bit more uh, over the top. So we hosted a, a smaller version of this luncheon. And then because it was the 150th anniversary, I really wanted to make it a huge celebration. And that's how we had 150 women here today.
2: No. So in the records of Delmonico's um, that existed, because I know there were, Moves and buildings and changes of were there records of this dinner?
4: They were. It was actually a luncheon, and, oh, the, luncheon, and, and yes, the way maybe. it was um, started is sort of interesting. Um, the whole, all the detail behind it. There was a banquet honoring Charles Dickens, and it was being held by the New York Press Club. And there was a woman that was part of the press club that wanted to participate in the banquet to honor Charles Dickens. Her name was Jane Crowley, and she was not permitted to attend the banquet, and she was very, very upset about that. And she really was persistent in saying, I'm a member of the press club. I'd like to honor Charles Dickens. Finally, the press club relented and said, okay, you can attend, but you have to be behind a curtain. You cannot be seen, and people can't... Uh, you can't be seen, they can't see you, and you have to be hidden away. Obviously, she wasn't going to go for that. Well, and she had a name. I mean, she had quite a name in her own right as a, as a journalist. She was as, a journalist. Yeah. I think her uh, pen name was Jenny June. Jenny June, right. And she decided that that, was, that answer was not satisfactory. So what she did was she gathered some other women that were in the same position, uh, a lot of journalists, a lot of professional women, and she knew that there would be a group of them that would want to meet on a regular basis to discuss uh, politics of the day, um, whatever was happening in that particular era. And she approached the Delmonica brothers and said, we know we cannot attend the Charles Dickens Banquet held by um, the New York Press Club, but we'd like to have our own, separate from them. And the Delmonico brothers, being as progressive as they were, agreed to that. And that started the first women's movement, really, when you think about it. And they continued to have uh, lunches and dinners and banquets and meetings. For many years after that as a matter of fact I think there's still some branches of the cirrhosis Club still in existence
2: you know I did I actually saw that online when I was doing some research on the club and the name of the club and and that they do exist in in some some areas all small groups right. but but they do exist and it's wonderful and then I spoke to um, Jackie ebanks of course about mm-hmm. gender gender equity and it's never a more opportune and important time for an event like this to occur and i congratulate you on on the effort and putting all the pieces together and 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 the chef billy oliva giving over the kitchen to the guest chef which rightfully is a woman we'll be talking to her shortly and i look forward to what next event you might pull off because you do an excellent job thank you so much and thank you for joining me So in this celebratory luncheon, of course, last but not least, certainly not least, we have to talk about the food. And the food was not a small component. It was a wonderful luncheon prepared by James Beard Award-winning chef and restaurateur and writer Gabrielle Hamilton. Gabrielle, welcome. (laughs) Welcome. You laugh, and you laugh because you're, you're glad it's over, you're tired.
5: <laughs> it's just fun to hear myself. Um, Described. Yeah, yes. It's nice.
2: Um, you, uh, you. It was a, a wonderful luncheon, and, and those of us sitting at the tables were saying, wow, this is a lot more food than we normally eat at lunchtime. But then I suppose that had to do with the period. Were there any records available as to what was served at the first luncheon 150 years ago?
5: In fact, there is the menu from that, from that um, luncheon. And Karen from Delmonico's can provide it for you. Have you seen it?
2: No, I didn't get a chance to look at that.
5: I looked at that, and then I also had seen some of just original menus from here, not specific to the women's lunch. But it's just an eating style at the time. And I don't think you have to eat so much. It's just that there were so many things available. So... Um, so how did you make your
2: choices, uh, as to what you were, you didn't follow the menu that existed from I didn't. Time, I just
5: read through all of those menus and, uh, uh, looked for, uh, things that, uh, uh, popped out to me as, um, still relevant or vital or delicious or, uh, evergreen, sort of classic things that, um, could, would really work for me. And, um... And there was plenty. So the, I saw lots of bouillon, and yes. um, so that was easy for me to do. I've been into beef bouillon, you know, or brodo, I guess, is the new yes. phrase. But, of course, if that has contemporary feeling and so many vegetables, of course. There were so many vegetables on the menu um, and some of the sauces. Um, anyway, it just it was actually quite easy. Like it was very easy to... Um, find the classics that are evergreen, and curate the menu, That's which is pretty much my only skill set in life. <laughs> I shouldn't say my only skill set in life, but um, I feel like that's something I am good at, is um, knowing what to order, or what to cook, or what to eat.
2: Well, the first course that we had was...
5: That was humor and deliciousness. I, You know, it was maybe too clever or not, but I thought it's very delicious, it's very funny, and it's fitting. So it's a classic, um, it's called Malakoff, and it's Swiss. And, you know, the Delmonico brothers were from Switzerland. Right. <laughs> so I was just, you know, you were patting myself <laughs> on the back that I had a delicious item, an historic item, and a Swiss item in one um, bite. So... I hope, you, um, I hope you'll I hope you congratulate me on that it cleverness. Was, it, it,
2: I, you know, I didn't get the humor with the Swiss, okay. <laughs> with, with the Swiss Well, dish, here I am now to I explain know, now my I joke, it, right. which
5: is, that's the best way. It yeah. shouldn't be too funny. And it's, it's a just great, subtle. But,
2: it was a great fried, breaded and fried Yeah, it's
5: Gruyere. Um, Gruyere right. It's a, a Gruyere mixture, and you put it on a little crouton and you deep fry it and then we made a lively... It has some shallot and some Kirschwasser and um, a little nutmeg inside. So it's kind of like a, a cheese... Beignet almost yes. in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With And then you had the cornichon
2: and parsley. we had parsley. a very
5: lively, astringent uh, sort of tonic salad to go with it of parsley leaves and cornichon and capers and shallots.
2: I thought that. I, I, I liked that very much. I was... Struggling to get any kind of historic perspective, but now you've explained it, so I know. It's from the late 1800s. However, okay, so now, however, then we get went into the next course, which was the fish course. As I say, more food than than I had expected to eat, but it was typical of the time. So the second course was a fish course.
5: So we had blue fish, and I made a little pickled celery and a, a mayonnaise, a very loose, uh, silky mayonnaise from the poaching liquid and the corpouillon so we had made a pretty lively corpouillon to poach the celery in, to pickle the celery in and I reduced some of that with some of the fish fumet that we poached the mackerel and bluefish with and then I reduced that and made a very loose mayonnaise from that so uh, yeah, a little piece of cold-poached bluefish and mackerel. So that was one of the things from the early menu to, that you could right. see also, is that the, yeah. the, it was not... Um, I guess there was some Dover sole, actually, but it's uh, the darker, oilier... Darker fish, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and, you know, you don't see a lot of bluefish these days. No. Yeah. And we were psyched to get it.
2: And then the entree, the main entree, of course, was quite expected, um, a, well, for me at least, a chop. You know, and a lamb chop. That was... That was and excellently done it was uh, a very nice preparation with, and you added the spring vegetables which were you know, lively and beautiful
5: that is actually from the original menu so uh, the sauce Colbert the Colbert butter is um, tarragon and parsley and shallot and butter and a little bit of demi-glace and sauce Colbert is on the first menu and uh, The lamb loin chop, not so much. Uh, There would have been a blade chop. A
2: blade, right. But
5: we thought it was the too many um, muscles and textures in a blade chop would be sort of inappropriate for lunch today, I did. I just was like, let's get a little loin chop. And Originally, I'd wanted to have a soft-shell crab, uh, but it's been quite cold, and we're a little early, so we changed the menu item at the last minute there and went with the lamb chop. and. Yeah, buttered peas and asparagus. <laughs> yeah, I, I I
2: I thought it was very very classic, very uh, classic, 19th century. Um,
5: yeah, but I mean, know. you could also eat that now. At, uh, that, um, well,
2: exactly, and nobody nobody would even. I was looking for the historical references. Yeah, you know, but I don't think anyone else even blinked an eye. You know, nope. it, it was it was very good. That's the thing,
5: you know. I'm always into the pleasure principle, at the top of the. Consideration. So well, I want the food to be delicious and not um, so historical or, you know, or so yeah. funny or well. so clever or so technique. It's just first and foremost... As a proven, Are we as a proven food? award-winning
2: chef, I don't think you have to worry about that. You, you know you do that and do it well. And then there was a, a lovely dessert, not not heavy, and, and it was um, lots of puddings on those original menus. A lot menus. of puddings. So
5: this was a a rice pudding and a brulee, kind of a so right, brulee because I like a deconstructed right, which yes. was just a pragmatic consideration also because um, I like a brulee rice pudding and I couldn't brulee 180. Uh, a la minute, and so Mm -hmm. I made the brulee sort of opaline, you know, that the long tablet of uh, burnt sugar, and just laid them on top of the rice pudding. It was Um, as beautiful as it was delicious.
2: It was pretty. I I didn't hear any complaints at my table.
5: (laughs) You know, it's so fun. I don't really eat dessert, but I really love to play around with it. And, um... The, uh... The fun part of cooking here at Delmonico's in this immense dining room with the wood paneling and the tablecloths and the big chop plates with the gold rim, which is so opposite of what I do at Prune in our little, you know, telephone booth. So That's it's, right, you
2: have to n- and describe for listeners who may not be familiar with Prune. How, the,
5: how are, many seats yeah. are there? Ever? Well, it's not the seats, but how many square foot <laughs> feet have we shoved those seats into? So yeah. it's, you know, the tiniest, as we say, it's the tiniest restaurant in the face of the earth it is one of the smaller <laughs> restaurants
2: and it's so cramped it's 30
5: seats yeah. and, um, all, the and um, all the tables wobble and there's no room to do your work but we you know we cram in there and have a again, good time again I haven't it. heard any complaints I know well you know it it I complain well. sometimes yeah. but it is what it is but anyway my point is it's so fun to be in this um you know, to use a metaphor, it's like if you're just used to driving the Volkswagen Bug, it's really fun to get in the <laughs> driver's seat of a very big <laughs> car. So in the dessert realm, it was fun to, yeah, make the, the brûlée opalines and to make our little strawberry meringue kisses and, you know what I'm saying, yeah. to make a composed plate also. Um,
2: well, I not, thought it was a, a marvelous uh, choice that Karen... Nice. Made to ask you to be the chef for this occasion. Did mean, it makes sense. 20 years you've owned a restaurant and, and been the chef owner of the restaurant. A woman, which was, in that in itself, is something that was unheard of. So you were sort of a, a groundbreaker and game changer and, um, at that time as well. And I read something that you said in one of the interviews, here. the articles in, in a newspaper about this event. Coming up, and something about opening doors and the importance of
1: keeping Keeping
2: them open. open. Yeah. Um, I can't reconstruct it. I don't know if you can reconstruct it, but.
5: Yeah, I mean, people have asked why I was drawn to do the meal, and. um, uh, You know, I don't think. I am so driven by. Female chef events, in particular, um, only because the kitchen is so, um, for me, gender blind. It's so, um, can you cook? (laughs) Great. (laughs) I really don't care what you look like or what your gender is. I really don't care anything about you. But are you coming to work today? And are you good at it? (laughs) So, in my experience in the kitchens, it's, it's. um, In fact, my gender has meant very little, um, but, you know, you want to make sure, as we're saying, those, the, the doors, once they get open, you want to keep them open, and um, we that's why, that's why I did the, up. yeah, it's important to just mm-hmm. make sure everyone knows you're there, and we're still here, and we do this work, and, well, um, it was an eye-opening but,
2: Eye-opening event, I think, for—I noticed um, in the room there were a lot of, um, it seemed, younger women in the food media world. um. Right,
5: that's the only thing that I would say. I do think when you walk into a restaurant and you see uh, all women in the kitchen, it's still as um, arresting visually. It still is a sight, In the same way that when you see a female cab driver, you see a female trucker, you're still, you're, you still turn. You're like, whoa, whoa. You don't see that so often that all the line cooks are women or, um, the bartender, you know, it's a, it's still, um, noticeable. Yeah, absolutely. uh, I did notice the women in the room today, that's right, were, uh, it was predominantly very young and very white eating, but I- were you upstairs when we paraded out the entire yes, staff who worked on yes. this meal? And it was a, it was a rainbow staff, It Definitely. was a quintessential kitchen staff. It was exactly like every kitchen you've ever worked in in your whole life. <laughs> it, was, you um, and, yeah. and, and it was... Every denomination and every Male and, and female, tall, short, fat, skinny, brown... Browner, white. <laughs> um, anyway, the whole uh, uh, the whole world is here in the kitchen. So I thought yeah. it was important for me, only for me, to bring the whole staff out because it's it represents the world that I really. Yeah. Wish well, and again, to.
2: it was it that was all talking about equality, and this was, I mean. This is what the the luncheon was about was you know equal opportunity and equality and that was great, and and the people the diners in the room the the women who were invited many from the public relations world of food entities um, a lot of people involved in food media. Um,
5: I don't know how the invitation list got made. So I, don't I had a nice list of people that I thought were quintessential New Yorker women, um, I we sent out invitations, I think um, uh, we. I don't know what happened, if they came or not, but inclu- it was uh, uh, I can, I mean, it doesn't matter who's on my list but no. I thought it was um, it would have been fun to have uh, that room, so I had like Jerry Jones and Justin Vivian Bond and Charlene Huntergull and Jenna Lyons and Melanie Dunay and Mimi Sheraton. Um I just thought oh, Mimi it, was
3: here.
2: She did oh, make yeah. it. Oh. Mimi Sheraton was she, here.
5: <laughs> she <laughs> um, definitely shows she up. She didn't for come
2: downstairs for the for the cocktail hour. I I sat with her on the couch for a while. She said,
5: Yay, at 93 well, years I can't old, walk up yeah. and down
2: the stairs that much I'll just wait till everybody comes back she's upstairs she's so good but she she's was so there and she sat through it she's going. she said I'm going to do a piece on this um, Mimi Sheraton for those of you who, who don't know um, she w- has been a restaurant reviewer and food writer for Mm um teen years. She was at the New York Times, when she in the in the sixties, I think. Yeah, late sixties, um, early seventies. And she is still sharp with her pen and her tongue. <laughs> her tongue, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And Something. but the young but and she was there, so she you know, she perhaps was cognizant of a lot of the um the sentiment of the re- the original reason for the luncheon, uh, women being able to go out. I mean, she's not 150 years old, but you know, knowing that it's not as rela—it wasn't as relaxed even then in the in the 50s and 60s as it is now. You know, when did you? You know, when you go out with a group of your girlfriends, and you know, you're very relaxed about it, and and, and you go to a nice restaurant, any any restaurant, and. Imagine not being able to have done that, and I think this was an eye opener for a lot of the young women who were in the room. I think this was something that they had never been aware of, and and hopefully this will, you know, just be another layer of that whole, um, as you mentioned, keep the door open, keep the opportunities open. I mean, things were not, you know, available to. Everyone at all times. So that was, was the the law was that you could not eat unchaperoned, unchap- unaccompanied by a male escort. Well, today that escort has you know other meanings. But yeah, and you know, well, first of all, there weren't that many fine dining restaurants. Delmonico's was the first and the only one for quite some time, and then it followed suit in all the other cities around the country very soon after that. And um, and here we are. We can, so next time you think about that, next time you call up your girlfriends, those female listeners out there, when you call your female girlfriends and say, hey, let's go celebrate, I just got a new raise, let's go to, let's, let's blow it all out at Delmonico's or some fancy restaurant, you don't even have to blink an eye. 150 years ago, it couldn't have happened. Thank you, Gabrielle, for. Participating in this and making it such a wonderful event, such a celebratory event.
5: It was so fun for me. Thanks.
2: And thank you to, to Delmonico's as well. And thank you to all my listeners for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past.